going to Genesis chapter 34. This is a narrative chapter. Um, you will recognize it right away. Um, and, and I was sifting through this, like I said here in the recent days, and, and the key themes are, are just permeating this chapter. So, so what we're going to do is we're going to read this chapter in its entirety and get the entire uh, narrative set before our eyes. And then I'd like to share something with you um, from a very good book that I've uh, read. So let's look at Genesis chapter 34, and we'll see these things that God has for us tonight. Genesis 34, verse 1. And Dinah, the daughter of Leah, which she bare unto Jacob, went out to see the daughters of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamer, the Hivite prince of the country, saw her, he took her and lay with her and defiled her. And his soul clave unto Dinah, the daughter of Jacob, and he loved the damsel and spake kindly unto the damsel. And Shechem spake unto his father Hamor, saying, Get me this damsel to wife. And Jacob heard that he had defiled Dinah, his daughter, and now his sons were with his cattle in the field, and Jacob held his peace until they were come. And Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out unto Jacob to commune with him. And the sons of Jacob came out of the field when they heard it, and the men were grieved, and they were very wroth, because he had wrought folly in Israel in lying with Jacob's daughter, which thing ought not to be done. And Hamer communed with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longeth for your daughter. I pray you give her him to wife, and make, make, make ye marriages with us. And give your daughters unto us, and take our daughters unto you, and you shall dwell with us, and the land shall be before you. Dwell and trade ye therein, and get you possessions therein. And Shechem said unto her father and unto her brethren, Let me find grace in your eyes, and what ye shall say unto me I will give. Ask me never so much dowry and gift, and I will give according to as ye shall say unto me. And give me the damsel to wife. And the sons of Jacob answered Shechem and Hamor his father deceitfully and said, Because he had defiled Dinah their sister. And they said unto them, We cannot do this thing to give our sister to one that is uncircumcised, for that were a reproach unto us. But in this will we consent unto you, if you will be as we are, or as we be, that every male of you be circumcised. Then while we give our daughters unto you, and uh, then will we give our daughters unto you, and we will take your daughters to us, and we will dwell with you, and we will become one people. But if ye will not hearken unto us to be circumcised, then will we take our daughter, and we will be gone. And their words pleased Hamer and Shechem, Hamer's son. And the young man deferred not to do the thing, because he had delight in Jacob's daughter. And he was more honorable than all the house of his father. And Hamer and Shechem, his son, came unto the gate of their city and communed with the men of their city, saying, These men are peaceable with us. Therefore, let them dwell in the land and trade therein. For the land, behold, it is large enough for them. Let us make their daughters to us for wives and let us give their daughter, them our daughters. Verse 22, only herein will 
the men consent unto us for to dwell with us, to be one people, if every male among us be circumcised as they are circumcised. Shall not their cattle and their substance and every beast of theirs be ours? Only let us consent unto them, and they will dwell with us. And unto Hamer and unto Shechem his son hearkened all that went out of the gate of his city. And every male was circumcised, all that went out of the gate of his city. And it came to pass on the third day, when they were sore, the two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brethren, took each man his sword and came upon the city boldly and slew all the males. And they slew Hamer and Shechem, his son, with the edge of the sword, and took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went out. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and spoiled the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their sheep and their oxen and their asses and that which was in the city and that which was in the field and all their wealth and all their little ones and their wives took they captive and spoiled even all that was in the house. And Jacob said unto Simeon and Levi, you have troubled me to make me to stink among the inhabitants of the land among the Canaanites and the Perizzites, and I bring few in number. They shall gather themselves together against me and slay me, and I shall be destroyed, I and my house. And they said, should he deal with our sister as with a harlot? Hey, guys, what a chapter. Uh, You can see why we had to read it in its entirety, because it's one piece, one narrative. Now, uh, I would like to share this with you. This is a, a book called Pastoral Helmsmanship. It's a very good book. I recommend it to any elder, any pastor, any, any young pastor. In the opening chapter, this chapter is called Tempered by the Storm. I want to read something for you. And I wanted to read this portion of Genesis 34 first, and then I wanted to read this to you. Um, I would recommend this to any layman as well. It's a good book to read, but um, this first chapter is called Tempered by the Storm, and this man writing, his name is simply Rodney. He's one of the authors of this book. There's three authors, and and listen to what he says. This story requires setting the stage. On December 31st, 1999, I was one of several adult volunteers from our church attending the Anaheim, California venue of YouthLink 2000, a multinational, multi-city, millennial celebration for youth. Among the 20 or so high schoolers from our church was my 13-year-old daughter. Around 8 p.m., one of the speakers challenged the youth to embrace the new millennium by giving your all to Jesus. He continued by challenging the youth to be sure their lives had been given to Jesus. My response was, quote, yep, I've done that, end quote. Next, he challenged those present to give their education and future careers to Jesus. This man writes, I've done that too. Reflecting on the call that took me from a career in healthcare administration to church planning, then he challenged his listeners by reminding them that, the most, uh, that most would someday be married and to commit your marriage and future spouse to God now. And this man says, done that too. Uh, was my response. The next challenge was to commit their future children to the Lord. And against, and again, in my mind, I said, check, I've done that. But this time, it was 
as if the Lord was saying to me, no, you have not. I recall thinking, of course I have. We have, we have had dedication services for our three children. We have committed them to the Lord. However, there was only a silence from God. Uh, for the next several hours, I wrestled with God. At one point, I said to him silently, of course, God, my children are yours. Everything is yours. And unexpectedly, I sensed a response from God. Uh, obviously, he's not hearing an audible voice here. He's just recording this. Again, silently, he puts in parentheses, you've not given her to me. Next to me was our child, our second child, my oldest daughter. Uh, but God, I have given her to you. You can take her to the mission field. You can let her be a pastor's wife. You can do whatever you want. Just don't let her be hurt. The silence and sorrow that followed was broken by a thunderous roar of tens of thousands of youth yelling, Ten, nine, eight, seven. I recall crying out loud, She's yours, God. No, she's yours. Your conditions. She's yours. As the countdown reached one, as the crowd erupted in Happy New Year and Welcome to the New Millennium, I hugged and kissed my daughter, who was unaware of the battle that had been raging within me. A few minutes later, an invitation was given for the youth who had made decisions that, e that evening to come forward, and one of the first at the front was my daughter, who responded to God's call to be a missionary to her peers, no matter what it took or where it took her. In my mind, I envisioned my daughter going to some third world Muslim nation, However, the path God chose was something much more different that no one could anticipate. On a bright March Sunday afternoon, I was returning from preaching at a small Baptist church near Bakersfield, California. And when I arrived in Portersville, about an hour to the north of the church, it was already 6.30 p.m. Since the evening service at my home church was almost over, I drove directly home. And when I arrived at our house, I noticed that the front door was open. And where I lived, it was not a good sign. I parked on the curb and walked to the front door. Is anyone there? I asked. There was no answer. I peered in, looking for signs of a robbery. The television was there. The VCR was there. The video games were still there. I walked inside looking in the kitchen. The microwave and the small appliances were all there where I had left them. I went into the garage where my collector car and my multitude of tools were. Everything was just as I had left it. Confident that no one was in the house, I walked through the hallway to the bedrooms. It was then that I heard sobbing. As I called out, I tried the door, which was locked. After several pleas, my daughter finally opened the door, crying. I don't know what to do. I'm sorry. I don't know what to do. In the minutes that followed, I found out that my precious daughter had been sexually molested earlier that evening at a church event. And the perpetrator threatened her and her family with bodily harm if she said anything. She was so hurt and so scared that she ran the four miles it took to get home from church without telling anyone. Thus began a journey of pain, grief, grace, love, and forgiveness. As a father, I had once said, if people hurt me, I don't care. But if they hurt or touch my children, especially my daughter, I'll kill them. Those words came to mind as my daughter clung to me in the hallway. Instead of revenge, I remember praying with her, Romans 8.28. At the end of the prayer, I remember uh, asking God to help us to love and to forgive the man who did this horrible act. 
and to make wise decisions in the coming days. The first decision was to call the police. That's a good one. Call the cops. The next was to contact the church. As a church leader, one often forgets that the storms come not only to the church, but to our families. Jesus told his followers, in the world you will have tribulation, John 16, 33. And James reminds us, count it all joy, my brothers, whenever you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, James 1, 2. Over the next several months, on a daily basis, I would need to ask God for strength to love and forgive the man who violated my daughter. I also continued to trust God to fulfill what I was claiming as a promise to, quote, cause all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose, Romans 8, 28. For months later, my daughter was at, uh, excuse me, four months later, my daughter was at Centrifuge, which is a summer camp experience for youth. Almost immediately, she noticed a girl who did not participate in any of the camp activities. A conversation something like this ensued. This man writes, my daughter said, she said, my daughter said, my daughter, hey, what are you doing? What are you, why aren't you joining us for activities? The girl, I just don't want to be here. My daughter, then why did you come to camp? The girl, you wouldn't understand. My daughter, try me, I might. The girl had come to camp to escape the pain of being a victim of sexual abuse. Camp was one week was a one-week break in the cycle of a fear and pain in this girl's life. As the girl and my daughter became friends, the opportunity to share Christ grew. I'll never forget the phone call from my daughter that Friday as she shared how her new friend had decided to receive Christ. Three months later, my daughter and I drove 400 miles to participate in the baptism of this girl and her mother. This young girl shared Christ with her mother, who has also become a Christian. On the drive home, my daughter asked, Dad, do you think there are many other girls like us? My research, my recent research showed that nearly one in four girls is sexually abused by the time they finish high school. Yes, I'm afraid that there are many girls like you, he said, and most are going through this alone, without Christ. The next day, my daughter put up an index card on the high school bulletin board. It read, quote, girls been hurt or abused, question mark, need someone to talk to, question mark, Starbucks, 6 a.m. Thursday, end quote. That Thursday morning, as I drove my daughter to the Starbucks next to the high school, she said, Dad, what if no one shows up? My response was immediate. Even if there's no one there, I'm so proud of you for being willing to use your experience to help others. To our surprise, over 20 girls responded and came out to that first meeting. Over the years, my daughter has used this experience as a platform for sharing the gospel with multitudes who would never have heard the message if they had not, uh, never heard the message of hope from a pulpit. God also used this experience in my journey, in my life, teaching me that love and forgiveness are not dependent on me or deserved. Through Christ, I was able to love and forgive the man who did this to our daughter. Sadly, he took his own life in 2010. As a result, I now understand how David could lament Absalom's death despite his actions. As with the other authors... This man goes on to say, 
We have all been through the storms. This is just one of the many that we have endured. But it is the one that has taught me the most about weathering the rough seas. Learning forgiveness is a key component in any ministry level. That's the end of his section. That is what to do. What Simeon and Levi did is what not to do. What we see Simeon and Levi doing is flat out vengeance. It is revenge. Let me read some of the key themes that I've seen in this chapter alone. Sinful revenge. This is sinful revenge, what we've seen Simeon and Levi perform. There's an abuse of God's word in Genesis chapter 34. There's clear sexual sin. And there's an abuse of sexual ethics, which the Bible teaches. I don't know if you caught the word. I tried to slow down whenever, whenever we hear Simeon and Levi open their mouths. They actually said, this thing ought not to be. There's a clear distinction there. Uh, the word ought is, is a word that demands a right and a wrong. Um, I'm not leaning down the road of Immanuel Kant. That's not what I'm saying because he had a categorical imperative that dealt with ought. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm using what Simeon and Levi are referencing here, that there is a right and there's a wrong, and it's clearly taught in scriptures, uh, in the scripture. I think we see in this patience, marriage covenant, society is based on ethical homes, lust is deadly, vanity is deadly. What we see Simeon and Levi doing is an abuse of the Abrahamic covenant. They are using circumcision to get what they want instead of using it as a witnessing tool. Uh, We'll talk about that later. They allowed sin to leaven. This includes Jacob. This is one of Jacob's spiritual low points. He had a lot of them, and I'm thankful for that in a sense because that tells me that, look, this guy was really messed up, and so am I. Uh, He had a lot of spiritual damage and baggage, and Jacob uh, demonstrates this in Genesis chapter 34. There's something else we need to learn at the very opening verse of Genesis 34. Um, and this is, to be, to be blunt, young people are dumb. Uh, immaturity is deadly. I, I don't want you to think that Dinah is completely without excuse here. Um, there, is a, there is a need for discipleship in our generation like never before. I, I've used that twice now, that phrase today. I, I don't like using the word never before. It's always a demand. Discipleship is very important. What we see here is false converts into the church. I'm not saying that Israel is the church, but it is dangerous to pass over false converts in order to just build the church. Um, Instead of seeking Shechem's repentance and conversion, Simeon and Levi sought to use the sign of the covenant to get what they wanted, to seek revenge and to seek vengeance and to take vengeance into their own hands. Now, there's something else that we can learn from Genesis chapter 34. Now, either there was a very great love for Shechem and Hamer from the city of Shechem, or they were a couple of dictators. Because if you think about it, they come back to the city and they stand in the gate and they demand that everybody follow through with what Jacob and the uh, Simeon and Levi have now placed on the table. And they demand that the whole city do this. Uh, that the whole city, every male be circumcised, and it happens. So either they have just commanded a love for, from these people, or they just flat out demand. They're running roughshod as a chieftain would over a, over a people. 
Um, they demand this uh, procedure. And above it all, you will see tonight that God's sovereignty is in this uh, throughout, even in this deplorable sin. God is reigning over this. He's reigning over history. He's reigning over sin to bring about his purpose. Jacob was not to take the land yet. He was said to be a sojourner, one traveling through. And at the end of chapter 33, I'll allow you to study that some other time, but at the end of chapter 33, Jacob purchased a piece of land from Shechem. He buys this. And in fact, he, he does this, he purchases this piece of land, and it's the same piece of land that, that we find in John chapter 4 whenever Jesus meets the woman at the well. Remember, the woman says, this is Jacob's well. You're gonna, are you greater than our father Jacob? That was in Shechem. That was, that was there in Shechem, what we're talking about here in Genesis chapter 34. So, I did not plan alliteration, but I want to give you three headings, and they all begin with P, okay? The first one is person, places, persons, places, and problems. Persons, places, and problems. Who's Dinah? Dinah is the daughter of Leah. Leah is Rachel's sister. Leah was the less loved of the two sisters by Jacob. Jacob loved Rachel. Rachel's womb was closed by the sovereign hand of God um, until the right time. But Dinah was born to Leah of Jacob. Look at verse 1. Dinah, the daughter of Leah, which she bare unto Jacob, went out to see the daughters of the land. I made that little kind of tongue-in-cheek remark that young people were dumb. The, this move by Dinah is, it, it kind of removes a little bit of reproach from, it places some reproach on her. She shouldn't be doing this. And ultimately, it points straight back to Jacob. Jacob, why are you allowing Dinah to just walk freely through this pagan land? The Canaanites, historically, are the most pagan society that has ever walked the face of the planet. They sacrificed their own babies. This is not a place where you just say, hey, you want to go to the mall, Dinah? Why don't you walk down? These guys may sacrifice some babies today. This is a serious issue for Dinah to just be walking through the Canaanite land, expecting everything to be just fine. And she ends up falling into the wrong crowd, whether that happens, this happens over time, and she catches the eye of this this king's son. We don't know. All we know is that, and when Shechem, the son, notice how the city's name is Shechem and the boy's name is Shechem, the, this, this immature, spoiled, young brat kid who is probably about 20-some years old, has the same name of the city. And Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite prince, of the country saw her and took her and lay with her and defiled her. Now, if this wasn't in the Bible, if this was in one of our children's books, we would probably take it away from them. How is this in the Holy Bible? We have to ask ourselves that question. Why, why is this here? And it's important for us to reiterate that this is God's word and God is teaching us something here, something very important. Um, Shechem is in Samaria, as I've already stated. Hamer, the name Hamer actually means donkey or a pack animal, uh, an ass. And it's not like today where we would somehow equate that to a joking remark. He's literally, he's, he's, his name means donkey, as if he's a hard, strong, hardworking individual. And he's really the only upstanding person in this entire story. 
he proposes these, these issues to Jacob. This transpires. Uh, you need to point out that in verse 2, this is forcible. Uh, the Hebrew language is emphasizing that he took her by force. This was not consensual. This was an act of defilement where he could not restrain himself. This is sinful. This is contrary to God's word, contrary to God's command for marriage. And he takes this girl by force. And his soul clave unto Dinah. This is lust. Okay? He sees what he wants and he cannot restrain himself. And I was telling the kids today, no, we were not in Genesis chapter 34, but but I've been seeing a, a, a hyper-emphasis on outer, outward beauty. I think we see this in every generation. We've seen this for years and years, but it seems to be really prevalent today. Where, I mean, we got the fake eyelashes and the makeup all done and the, all the kind of hair and the risky clothing and the showing off the moves and everything. And now you have social media. It just seems rather magnified. And, and on Twitter was actually someone tweeted a picture of themselves and they were all dolled up. They had, they had big, giant, fake eyelashes and they were all, you know, outward looking, trying to catch somebody. And this person said, focus on your beauty. Focus on your outer beauty. It'll, it'll help your mental health. And, and the problem we have with that is each one of us in this room knows that beauty doesn't last forever. But beauty in the heart, it truly does. The character of the soul, uh, that, that is a radiant beauty that doesn't change. It's, if you're basing your mental health on how you look, hmm, I, I don't know about you, but if that was the case, every morning when I'd wake up, I'd be in the loony bin. I mean, we, we, we're, we can't base our lives off of what we look like. And it's dangerous to lust after outward appearances because it's only skin deep, literally. And this is what Shechem is doing. He is lusting. Shechem spake, verse 4, unto his father, saying, and, and here's just the, what I would interpret this to be, this kid is just spoiled. Get me this damsel to wife. It's a little bit late. You've put the cart before the horse. You've... Uh, You've done it all the wrong ways. There's a huge abortion debate going on right now in our country. Uh, and, and it's made it to the Supreme Court. We've been praying that Roe v. Wade would be overturned. And, and I keep seeing something that's very interesting. Pro-choice individuals are screaming loudly for dads to step up and take responsibility. If dads would stay and they would pay and they would live and they would support what they've been called to do, we wouldn't have this problem. And you know what the pro-life side should be saying? Amen to that. It really is. Men, it's time to be a man. It's time to do what God has called you to do. If you play with fire, you need to stand up and accept the responsibility. And we kind of see this a little bit here. Like maybe there's some remorse. We don't know. But I think it's still moving off of lust. The proposal comes. Look at verses, verse 6 or verse 5. Jacob heard that he had defiled Dinah, his daughter, and his sons were with his cattle in the field. And Jacob held his peace until they were come. That's interesting. It's almost like Jacob begins to stew about this. He's quiet. 
And it's, I can't help but think, you know what? Maybe Jacob said, you better wait until my boys get home. I can't help but think that. You know, instinctively as a dad who has daughters, I think to myself, you better wait until their uncles find out. You know, that's the natural side of us. How do, we, how do we reach a point when we come to something like this in our lives where we go for grace instead of the gun? I mean, that's, this is a test of faith. Verse 6, And Hamer, the father of Shechem, went out unto Jacob to commune with him, and the sons of Jacob came out to the field and when they heard it, and they were very grieved, rightly so. This shows that they love their sister. And they were very angry. I can see that. That would be the right response. Uh, I don't know how you could not be angry because he had wrought folly in Israel and lying with Jacob's daughter, which this thing ought not to be. There it is. These things should not take place. This is wrong. And make ye marriages. Look at verse 8. And, and, a Hamer, and Hamer communed with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter, I pray that you give him her to wife. It seems to be that they're making some attempt at reconciliation. And verse 9, And make ye marriages with us, and give your daughters unto us, and take our daughters unto you, and you shall dwell with us in the land, uh, shall be before you dwell, and trade ye therein, and get your possessions therein. Now, now there's a big problem here. These are Canaanites. And Israel has been, Jacob has been called to be separate from them. Uh, to, to have this offer on the table of, well, let's just be one. It's almost like the church saying, well, we can hold hands with the world for just a little bit, and we won't get burned. We can play with sin just a little bit. We don't have to call out sin. We can just be, you know, a little bit, just let a little bit of sin go on. Don't get too harsh on sin. That's, that's the same kind of illustration that we're seeing here in Genesis 34. That, that if you think you can hold hands with the world and not get burned, it's, it, you're wrong. The proposal is a proposal for peace. Look at verse number 11. And Shechem said unto her father and unto her brethren, let me find grace in, grace in your eyes. There's a question for grace. And what you shall say unto me, I will give and ask me never so much dowry and gift. And I will give according to his... Uh, according as ye shall say unto me, but give me the damsel to wife. And the sons of Jacob answered Shechem and Hamer, his father, deceitfully. Oh boy. They have a plan. Now these guys aren't the greatest at making plans. These guys are rough and tumble guys. They are accustomed to sin and they're about to use the very token covenant that God has commanded to Jacob and to Abraham and Isaac, and they're going to use it to their advantage in order to enact revenge. This is exactly what God did not want to happen. They are, they are using these commands of God for their own selfish gain, for their own selfish desires. It's rather uh, at least honorable in some degree that Hamer goes to Jacob and tries to speak with him about these things, and then Shechem actually goes in front of Jacob and says, yes, this thing is true, this has happened, I want to marry her. There seems to be some sort of attempt to, to make these things right. But Simeon and Levi leverage circumcision to their own sinful advantage. This brings us, jump down to verse number 23. Shall not their cattle and their substance and every beast of theirs be ours? This heading is plunder and payback. 
Should everything that they have be ours, only let us consent unto them, and they will dwell with us. They're speaking to the city of Shechem now. And unto Hamer and unto Shechem his son hearkened all that went out of the gate of his city. And every male was circumcised, all that went out of the gate of his city. And it came to pass on the third day, whenever they were sore, the two of the sons of Jacob's, uh, two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brethren, took each man his sword and came upon the city boldly and slew all the males. This would have been literally a slaughter. This would have been so easy. They would just go through and just kill these helpless men. They could not run. They could not escape. They, it was a bloodbath. They, you, you really could question here, was it just Simeon and Levi? It very well could be. Uh, they wouldn't need anybody else. They, they could just go through the city. The whole city is, is, is literally down. They're enacting revenge. This is sinful. This is what we are not to do. Now, bring it back to what I read to you before. If this happens, do you run for grace or do you run for the gun? I think what we see in Genesis 34 is exactly what not to do. This is the taking matters into your own hands. In Deuteronomy, just keep your finger there or something, uh, in Genesis 34, in Deuteronomy 32... Verse 35, remember the book of Deuteronomy is like a summary of the law that has been given. It's, it's Moses reciting, it's like actually one big sermon, it's a beautiful book, it's a long book but very important. Deuteronomy chapter 32 verse 35, to me belongs vengeance and recompense, this is the Lord speaking, their foot shall slide in due time. For the day of their calamity is at hand, and the things that shall come upon them make haste. What's God telling us there? Well, one, vengeance is his. He will recompense. Leave it in the hands of God. He can do much better than you can. When you give this thing to the Lord, God knows about it anyway. Whatever it is that you may be contemplating vengeance, this is like the 10th degree of, of sinfulness against you or against your family mentioned in Genesis 34. But, but it, I can guarantee you it's not as bad as what Christ endured. On your behalf. So if there's something that comes in and it gets you really fired up and it really wants to make you retaliate and you think you've got it all figured out and you want to get back at that person, remember, God knows exactly what's going on and vengeance is His. Give it to the Lord. There's no other better place to be. Give it to Him. And, and even one step better, forgive them. Forgive them when they've deeply wounded you. Maybe physically. Maybe mentally. Uh, maybe outside in the fringe, they're just flat out slandering you and they don't, they don't have a care for you in the world and they just want to run your name through the mud and you have no contact with that individual. You just give it to the Lord and forgive them. Don't let that weigh on you and bring you down. It'll kill you. Go to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12, verse 19. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Therefore, if thy enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirsts, give him drink. 
For in so doing, thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. I think that's a good word for us. Let's, let's not be overcome of evil. Why? Because we are in Christ and Christ has the victory. Turn again to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. Verse 28. Hebrews chapter 10, verse number 28. He that despised Moses' law died without mercy unto two or three witnesses. Of how much, excuse me, of how much sorer punishment, suppose ye, shall he be thought worthy who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God and hath counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing and hath done despite unto the spirit of grace? That's a question that he's asking there. He's, he's asking a question about, about an individual who has who has counted the blood of Christ as unworthy. But the big thing that I want us to point out here is that we must remember, as I mentioned before, that Christ Jesus has shed his own sinless blood on behalf of sinners that we may be forgiven. It is imp- I-, I would go as far as to say that if you claim to be a Christian and you cannot forgive, I honestly, earnestly ask you to examine yourselves as Paul says in 2nd Corinthians examine yourselves because something is greatly prohibiting you from either growing in grace or you've never tasted grace if you cannot forgive because if we expect Christ to forgive us think about who we are how is that possible it would be like trampling the blood of Christ underfoot you're saying no 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 his blood is good enough to forgive me but I'm I can't forgive them what that's ridiculous verse 30 For we know him that hath said, Vengeance belongs unto me. I will recompense, saith the Lord. And again, the Lord shall judge his people. Don't worry, he's not only going to judge his people, he's going to judge the wicked, but he's also going to judge his people. Thankfully, our eternal judgment, our salvation has been placed upon Christ. The judgment that we deserve has been placed upon Jesus Christ. So we are therefore free from the ultimate condemnation that comes by the hand of God. I'm headed back to Genesis. Well, no, go to Matthew. That'll be the last one. Go to Matthew chapter 26. This begs the question. So are we just supposed to be a bunch of pacifists? Are we supposed to just, you know, lay lay down and kowtow to, to whatever kind of threat comes our way? Should we just let people just walk all over us like a doormat? You know, in the case of Simeon and Levi, are they justified in any sense to go and slaughter this entire city? No. This is quite clearly the the teaching from Genesis 34 that we should not enact revenge in our own hands, but we should place those things in the hands of God who is righteous and just. There's an interesting little story that we all know very well. Whenever Jesus was being arrested, the many, many Roman soldiers were coming, by the way. It wasn't just like eight guys. It was 100 Roman soldiers, 200 Roman soldiers. A cohort was coming to arrest Jesus Christ. Judas was there at the forefront, and he kisses Jesus. Jesus says, have you betrayed the Son of Man with a kiss? And they begin to arrest Jesus. And then a guy that we're all so familiar with decides that he's going to draw his weapon and go for a headshot, right? Peter decides he's going to pull out his sword and he's going to swing it at one of the high priest's servants. And thankfully, according to God's sovereign plan and purpose, by the way, even when you're hunting deer in the woods, you can't even make that bullet travel outside of the will of God. 
Peter's sword zoned through the air and he got Malchus's ear. And Jesus says, put up your sword. What does he say? Those who live by the sword will die by the sword. Now, I wish I could say that there wasn't so much confusion surrounding this verse, but sadly, a lot of people take this verse and they say, oh, now we have to be pacifists. What's Jesus actually saying there? It's very important for us to know whenever Jesus says, first of all, he says, put, put up your sword, Get, put it back. And have you ever asked the question, why exactly is Peter carrying a sword anyway? So, so there's really no problem. There was no problem before. So now Peter pulls the sword. He goes for a headshot. And Jesus says, no, those who live by the sword die by the sword. What's he teaching? He's saying the same thing that was mentioned in the Old Testament that has now traveled into the New Testament is if you shed man's blood by man's hand, uh, if you shed man's blood by your hand, by man's hand, your blood shall be shed. Right? He's saying, look, if you're, if you're going around killing people, with, you're, taking, you're taking vengeance into your own hands and you're playing judge and jury and you're finalizing, giving final verdict, you can expect to receive capital punishment. If you live by the sword, you're going to die by the sword. This, this isn't Jesus saying, no, now we just all have to be a bunch of pacifists and we can't defend ourselves at all. This is, if somebody comes at my family or comes at me, I'm allowed to defend myself. You know, there's varying degrees of people that would walk to the stake and be lit on fire. And if that was for the glory of God and I had no way out, I would do that too. I would think, I pray that for that grace and power and strength to do so. But Jesus is not calling for pacifism in Matthew chapter 26, verses 5 through 52, 51 through 52. He's simply saying that if you live by the sword, you can expect to receive capital punishment if you're going to be killing people. If you're going to be playing judge and jury, as Peter did. They weren't arresting Peter, they were arresting Jesus, and Peter decided he was going to go for the kill. Really, he was trying to take Malchus's head off. That's what he was trying to do. What an intent. What an. <laughs> he ducked. Yeah, I would too. If I... <laughs> Lost his ear, but saved his head. And it, it provided another opportunity for Jesus to demonstrate his messiahship to over several hundred people as he picks up a man's ear off the ground and puts it back on his noggin. I mean, if that doesn't say creator of all the cosmos, I don't know what does. I don't know any doctor that can do that, except for the good doctor. So what do we learn from this? Um, of course, the Bible does not say that we should not defend ourselves, but the primary emphasis of Genesis chapter 34, and I would say the rest of the Bible, demands or teaches that vengeance is poisonous. Vengeance is going to destroy you more than it's going to enact damage on the people you seek to uh, hurt. Vengeance is, is poison. Number two, unforgiveness will lead to spiritual rot. It's like cancer. It just it attacks a group of cells and it just begins to grow. Unforgiveness will eventually consume you until you, until you become a cold, embittered, heartless, unforgiving, graceless, merciless person. Where in the back of your mind, on the outside, you may have this facade of happiness and pleasantries. But inside you have like the furnace is just stoked and you want this person to die. 
That, that's, how, that's where it will eventually go. Number three. I, I, I'm really, probably out of all four of these points of application, I, I was most taken by this one. Um, sin is never overcome by more sin. Sin is never overcome by more sin. So when somebody, think about this. This is just, to me, this was just profound. When someone sins against you, you will never overcome their sin against you by sinning. I, I don't know if I've ever, maybe it's just me and y'all are like, yeah, that's, yeah, I get that. Well, for me, I was thinking to myself, like, that's huge. That, that is so important. If someone sins against me, I will never overcome that sin with more sin. Retaliatory or vengeance or vengeful or, or if I stew in it. That's another sinfulness. You know, it just makes you angry and worried and anxious. There's a sin. That's sin. You know, you, you just, it festers in you and you, you, you know, you let it get to you. It's in the back of your mind. You worry about these things. We can't worry about this stuff. Give it to Christ. Let him deal with it. Remind yourself that you're infinitely worse than they are. That's a good thing to think. You know, when somebody really sticks you good with something that hurts, my wife is really good at this. She, she always, when somebody hurts her or something happens in her life or something is, you know, somehow she has pain inflicted to her, she's like, I gotta, I'm worse than they are. I'm like, honey, how are you so humble? Why can I have some of that? You know, I'm ready to just get them, you know. But she's like, no, I'm worse than they are. And finally, and I think we can make this point of application for any message. God is working his plan. Jacob was to be a sojourner. He purchased a piece of land in Shechem. It was still in accordance with God's plan because in John chapter 4, Jesus had a divine appointment at the, with the woman at the well of John chapter 4. But if you recall, God didn't want Jacob to be in Shechem yet. He had to go spend 400 plus years in Egypt where God could display his power in the 10 plagues, in bringing up millions of Israelites up out of Egypt to bring them to their land, 40 years of wandering, providing for them, giving them the law from Mount Sinai. He had this plan. It was not to take place in Shechem, and it was definitely not to be holding hands with the Canaanites. That's the big thing. If Jacob was ready to just set up shop, eh, Shechem's pretty cool. There's a spring here. There's a well. I think we're good to go. Set the tent up, boys. And God says, nope, this isn't, you're not to be one with the Canaanite pagans. I need you to go be a witness in Egypt. Circumcision never changed, saved anyone, by the way. And these, these sons of Jacob, they decided to use it as a weapon. They, they decided to use the word of God as a weapon. There's guys in pulpits that do that. There's Christians that do that. They twist and manipulate the text to fit what they want in order that they may get to something that they desire. This is why we have to be on guard. 
This is why every time we open these doors, dear ones, I want you to learn and grow and know the word of God. It's, it's our sword. It's our life. So that is all I have for you tonight. If you want to survey Genesis chapter 34 in more detail, um, I would love to do that with you sometime or go home and do it uh, yourselves. Questions or thoughts tonight is what we covered. I hope this served as a good reminder to these simple truths. Oftentimes we forget like, hey, don't lie or be forgiving or don't enact vengeance. Those things are things we need reminded of uh, all the time. So...